0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program based in East Timor that has a singular vision, which is to promote the health and well-being of veterans and veterans families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast uh, with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants one-on-one and conduct podcast interviews to capture their story and their lessons learned and things that we can all learn from uh, as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journey and help others do the same. We're going to be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. Whether you're out and about or listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll learn a lot by listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks uh, so much. Welcome back. We've got our next um, next guest, John White. We're at the tail end of TA16, and uh, using as an opportunity to sit down and gather some some stories and some lessons learnt um, from amongst our participants. So, John White is a Vietnam veteran, and um, I won't steal his thunder. I might just get him to start off telling a little bit about his military background, if that's okay. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Mike. Um, my background. Really, I was a boarding school product, so I went to boarding school from the age of six. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to the military college, which is another four years. So I spent about 12 years in um, institutions and uh, found that the army was a very easy place for me to be because I understood sort of rank and status and tiers and castes and whatever. Um, so... From the military college, which I found not easy, but certainly not difficult. Some people were really upset by the standard of discipline and bastardization. But for me, it was just a continuation of boarding school. And, and by
0: military college, we're talking about yeah, Duntroon yeah. here? Or yep. Yeah, Duntroon.
1: Yep, yep. And that was a four-year course, and I went into the uh, infantry and got posted to uh, Queensland at Anagra because I needed a front row forward in the football pack, <laughs> literally. Sounds about right. Yeah, I, I was a, an OK footballer. So
0: you are part of the Rugby League, Rugby Union Mafia, were you? Yeah, I was. Absolutely. And they
1: sort of uh, they gave me a job as a platoon commander in um, 2 RAR at Inogra, but my real job was to be at football training and weekends and playing games and things. Of course it was. Uh, and then I got posted, I, I didn't protest, but I... Certainly made it known that, you know, I didn't join the army to play football. And so they posted me to Portsea, which is another officer cadet school, to uh, teach field craft and weapon training in minor tactics, which was um, about right, about the right level for me. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of training platoon commanders and section commanders and so on. Mm-hmm. And during that time, there there were some people went on this organisation called the Training Team, Australian Army Training Team Vietnam (AATTV), mm-hmm. uh, just generally known as the Team.
0: And this is sort of early sixties.
1: Early sixties. Yep. Um, yeah, early sixties. And they were coming back, and uh, most of them were posted to either Portsea or Duntroon because they were the only ones who really had combat experience. And I heard all these wonderful, daring do. Activities of people on the team, you know, on the teams, mm-hmm. sort of leading indigenous uh, forces to suppress the, the terrible communists sort of thing. And that's for me. That's good. So
0: you're, you're still young enough to see yeah, life was, as a romantic, 24 at romantic that stage, tale. Yeah, yeah,
1: or twenty-five, yeah. and uh, so I said to army headquarters through whichever channels I could use, um, you know, I'd like to be on the team. And so next thing I know, it's sort of bend over, cough twice, you're fit enough, <laughs> off you go. And so I went and I was told I'd be working with Motten who are the hill tribesmen, more, more of a Malay ethnic group than, than uh, Chinese. Okay. And um, so I, I studied up on them. I, they, the educator once spoke French from the French missions. So I had done schoolboy French, so I brushed up on my French and um, uh, brushed up on their religion, which was animism and what it meant and all yeah. that sort of thing, on their culture and their nomadic lifestyle and so on. And then off I went and I arrived at Da Nang to join my Montagnard troops, whom I'd done all this research on, and uh, arrived there to find out I was actually a company commander of Chinese-speaking, ethnic um, ethnic Chinese, but living in Vietnam, and they weren't allowed to be conscripted because they weren't allowed to be citizens, but they could be uh, engaged as mercenaries right, okay. by the Americans. So I ended up with a company of Chinese mercenaries. <laughs> and I thought, that's great. And I went over there with this lovely idea, you know, Australians love to think they're the best jungle soldiers in the world and that sort of thing. And so I believed in that propaganda and I went over there thinking okay now I'll train my Chinese that I know they were now to be the best you know sort of jungle operators." that'll only take a month or two and then I will be right and I was called in at the end of the week and said okay you're going out on operations oh yeah <laughs> when they <laughs> said next Monday so about two weeks after I arrived I go into the bush with hundred hundred and thirty or so uh, mercenaries two other Australians, two Australian war officers who were posted with me to make sure I didn't stuff up too much. <laughs> I'd what? never been in combat. Yeah, still 20, 24, 24, 25.
0: Yeah. 25, yeah.
1: And uh, those two guys had been to Vietnam before, so they they're doing a second tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just couldn't believe you know, what was happening because I I knew I couldn't train the, the uh, Nungs, that's what they call called, N-U-N-G-S, Nungs. I knew I couldn't train the nongs in you know, a week to fight, you know, massive combat. So I decided I'd find out what they did. Because they'd been at war for years. These guys have been sort of selling their, their services all over the place. Also including to the enemy, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went out in the sand dunes and we did a company attack uh, on the sand dunes. And I stood on a taller sand dune and watched what they did. Came down and said, That was terrific. Okay, that's what we'll do from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was the company attack. And the, sort of the company defense was because uh, they they used different holes when they dug a pit. Some were round, some were uh, oblong, some were rectangular. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it depended they, whether they'd been trained by the Americans, the French, the Vietnamese, or the Viet Cong. Um, so anyway, we, we got that sorted out. What sort of pit? Whatever you like. Make your own. (laughs) What sort of weapons are we carrying? Take your pick. Uh, Most of them wanted AK-47s because they are so reliable. But the other reason we had AK-47s is if you're out on patrol, all my guys could speak Vietnamese. Okay. And if the Ford Scout got shot at, what he would normally do is call, you know, fire back a burst of AK-47 and call out in Vietnamese, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, sort of... Don't shoot, comrades. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, we're all all going the other (laughs) way. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a a deception. It was different. It was very different.
0: Okay. And what was the main um, sort of task that these guys, or that you had been given to give these guys, to train them for anything in particular?
1: They are a ready reaction force. Mm -hmm. So in each corps, there were four corps in Vietnam, and we were in I Corps, which was marine territory. This is where it gets a bit messy. It was marine territory, so the marines ran the show. But uh, the army was there as well, and marines flew helicopters, and army flew other helicopters and all sorts of things. And the marines didn't like the army. Uh, they thought the army was soft. And very seldom did you ever find a marine under the command of an army officer. Um, the job was there was a, a um, five-company, I suppose you'd call it a battalion, it was called the uh, Mobile Strike Force. And so around on the, the Laotian and, and um, Cambodian borders were these special forces camps called A camps, run by A teams. That's where that expression comes from. Right,
0: out. okay, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, the A teams. But the A teams were backed up by a B team which was a ready reaction. So when an A team got into trouble, when they got attacked, yep. the B team flew in somewhere else, fought their way in to the perim- through the perimeter and then reinforced the A team and uh, you know, called in aircraft and mm. all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the Mike Force, which is what the Mobile Strike Force means, the Mike Force was an elite unit within an elite unit and a bit full of themselves <laughs> and... Uh, but because they were elite and they saw themselves as elite, they had to be elite and therefore they uh, were more reliable than some of the other mercenaries because everyone knew that they wouldn't run away. And so we went out to a place called Cam Duc, which was near the Laotian border. You go right across Vietnam to the other side from Da Nang over to the Laotian border. We were about seven kilometres from Laos mm. on a, an old French road that used to run up through the centre which was disused, and um, there was an old French fort. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it's Something a fairy It's a movie. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. So there's this old French fort dug into a hill, the top of a hill, which is overgrown, but it had what the, what the Americans call bunds, B-U-N-D-S, you know, sort of earthen banks. And um, so we said, oh, we'll just slip in here and occupy this hill. Mm-hmm which we did, with the intention of patrolling south and seeing what was there. Now, what I didn't know and what no-one told me, and I'm not sure whether they omitted to tell me by accident or on purpose, there's the second NVA division comprising between eight and 10,000 people, uh, probably more than 5,000 after casualties, advancing up this road, which I'm sitting astride, <laughs> with a hundred, <laughs> you may let with 120 Nungs and half a dozen Americans and Australians as the commanders. And I can hear these these, exp- these explosions going off down uh, to my south. And I'd ring up the headquarters and say, There are, there are explosions going yeah. here. Yes, yeah, so there's something happening. Oh, don't worry about it. It's probably uh, bombers. And I say, If it's bombers, you can hear the bombers. Yeah, they, there's something dropping the bombs. No, <laughs> these aren't bombers. And you used to, in those days, you, you had... It was a real cowboy country. You know, everyone did their own thing. And you had these FACs, uh, forward air controllers, and they'd fly around and this guy was coming over us and I got his frequency and called him up and said day. And he said, oh, you an Aussie? And I said, yeah, I've just been down there for R&R. And we became, you know, best first friends for <laughs> forever, sort of thing. And he said, uh, you know what's happening to your south? And I said, no. He said, they're building bridges. I said... What? I thought you would have heard the explosions. Yeah, they're building a road and it's heading straight for you. And I said, I think I probably said shit or something like that. You know, I was, I was sort of a bit astounded because th- everyone knew what everyone else was doing. So there's no way, well, a, an NVA division was moving up a road without the Americans know about it. With armour?
0: With armour? Tanks? No, no tanks. Okay, no, yeah. they
1: had everything else. Yeah. But they didn't have ground-to-air missiles and they didn't have tanks. Right. right. Thank goodness. So um, up they come and they're getting closer and closer and I say to my headquarters, which is 100 kilometres away, run by a Colonel Shungle whom, if he hadn't died, I would have shot him anyway. <laughs> I really <laughs> would have. He said, no, 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 everything's under control. We're going to send you reinforcements, you know, so we're going to hold and." back you up and whatever. So the next thing I know, uh, they won't give me permission to, re- to retire, but they sent me 44 Marines with two howitzer guns, Marine artillery, and without asking me. And when I saw them, I said, what the hell are you doing here? They said, oh, we're here to you know, sort of save the world and world freedom and, and freedom <laughs> from hunger and things. And I said, no, you're not. You know, I don't want you here. Go away because we're leaving. And so no one would give them permission to go back. So they're in army territory, but they were marine guns. So who's going to give them the order? And the army says, you stay. So the marines said, OK, I'm going to stay there. And I'm saying, you go. And so it was a bit of a bit of a standoff. And I, I said to, the, to my headquarters, they've got to go because I can't leave them here on their own. They don't have a bloody clue they were hopeless in the the bush because they'd been trained to fire guns. But they couldn't fire the (laughs) guns. Ridiculous. They couldn't fire the guns because of the canopy and the houses have got to fire up and over. And I said, what are they doing here? They said, they're giving you fire support. (laughs) I said, but they can't fire because we've got all these trees here. Yeah, they can't get past the trees. Oh, well, yeah, so I'm sure it'll be fixed somehow. So... (laughs) Then, <laughs> then they sent me thirty six CIDG, Civilian Irregular Defence Group, and these thirty six were Vietnamese, and they were pretty bad boys. Actually, a lot of them were sort of given the, literally given the choice of going out to Cam Doc and joining the CIDG, or going to prison for theft or whatever. Yeah. Um. So they got sent out to me, and the next thing I know, my Claymore. My wires were being cut, and also, and I said, hello, we don't need this. <laughs> so I told them to go home. So I put them on the road to go. And on the way back, they got ambushed. So they said, because the next thing you know, about an hour after they left my camp, heading back towards their camp, which is about ten kilometres away, uh, there's all this gunfire, bursts of gunfire, heavy machine guns, light machine guns, RPGs. I thought, oh, Jesus done the wrong thing, here, yeah, they're in trouble. And the next thing about an hour later, they turn up at my doorstep again, saying, you've got to let us in, we've been ambushed. And what I did notice immediately, of the 36 of them, not one was wounded, injured, anything. And so what I found out later is they staged this, because they, when they came back to me, they insisted they come into the camp. And I said, no, I'll give you an area outside the camp where we can protect you, but you're not coming in, because I still didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, meanwhile, the second NVA division's moving <laughs> up the road, and I'd send patrols out. I took patrols out. I had to take them out myself because I had to show the Nong's that I wasn't one of those guys who stayed in the foxhole and I was yeah. you know, out there. So I always took a few uh, of the top Nong's with me, and they saw that I was okay as a as a leader. So um, when we knew we were about to be done over. We now had about two hundred people in the camp, not the camp. It was a, it was a small fort, mm. basically dug in. We had about two hundred people, but the the North Vietnamese, who are very fine soldiers, it wasn't like they were a rabble sort yeah. of marching up with pitchforks or something. These Ragnarok. guys were good. Mm. Yeah, mm. we'd had a couple of contacts with them, and and we all knew they were good. So um, the next thing you start hearing. Noises not too far away, and then every time we sent out a patrol, it'd get no more than a couple hundred meters, and you know we were we were, we knew we were surrounded, so we knew we were going to get done over. Mm. So I got mm. all the, I got hold of the non-commanders, and because my main concern was that the nongs would say this is because they're survivors, they're mercenaries, mm. and if they think they're going to get wiped out, they'll do something about it. Yep. So to prevent them taking off, which I hope they wouldn't, but I just need to double double ensure to prevent them taking off, I got them together and through their commanders and said, OK, now I know you are honourable soldiers and I know you would not flee. We must stay and fight. We don't, we don't have an option here. So this is what we're going to do. When the first shooting starts, everyone gets in their pits with their weapon you got 20 seconds, literally, to get in the pit with your weapon. Anyone above ground, obviously, then is an enemy, and will be shot. So it really meant that if you left your pit and made a run for it, you got shot. <laughs> and good strategy. Well, it was. It, yeah. was, a, it was a good strategy because it didn't upset their their uh, uh, vision of themselves as being heroic people. But there was no way to run to anyway. You could just run out the other side and get in the jungle. I suppose, I suppose a few did that. So anyway, about three o'clock in the morning, it all happens. It would not happen the way I thought it would. I thought they'd put in an attack and I was pretty familiar with communist um, guerrilla, not guerrilla, army tactics. So I was pretty sure they. So I was fairly aware of the, of the uh, other side's, what's the word, tactics, mm. and figured out I knew where they'd come in or try to come in, so I'd reinforce that with 30-cow machine guns and things like that. Had plenty of weapons. Um, But the next thing that happened, I wasn't there, but down where we we normally had our entry point, there's sort of a dozen uh, CIDG who were on our side uh, saying, you know, friendly, friendly, we need to come in. So the Marines let them through. And they threw satchel charges and grenades in where the marine machine guns were. And I heard this and I dashed up from my my hole in the ground. And the next thing I know, is this great ball of fire coming towards me. They had flamethrowers. Oh, wow. And I, I got down. A, I think we're being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> it was on. It was on, yeah. And so all you could hear was this gunfire. If you, go to a rifle range and there's 50 weapons shooting all at once. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> so I said, oh, bloody hell. So first thing, i got to get some, some support here. So I dashed down to my radio, which is where I slept. It was just, it just a hole in the, near the ground. And um, got on to Camp Dook, which is the next place along, and said, we need help, we're under attack. And the guy said, don't bother us now, we just had a mortar round land. And I said, one effing mortar round, Mate, we're under attack. We, we're coming over the top. He said, no, no, we're busy. And he told me to piss off. So I got onto Da Nang, where the main headquarters was, and told them what was happening. They said, OK, fine, what do you need? And I said, anything you got. <laughs> so they sent out a, a, a what they used to call a spooky, which is a, 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 a DC-3 or a DC-4 with one half of it cut open, and they had four, three or four Gatling machine guns oh, yep, yep, yep. along the side yep. of the aircraft. They fired the guns by, by um, directing the aircraft, so they'd tip it over and bury where the rounds land. And these things came in, so they, they dropped flares, and we had a 4.2mm mortar which was firing flares, but all the crew got wiped out, so I sent another couple of people up there to get it going again, they got wiped out, so that was the end of that. But by then this, this uh, spooky arrived with uh, flares and gatling machine guns, they said, where do you want me to fire? I don't I don't know how I got to speak to them. I spoke to them. I spoke to combat aircraft. Somebody did something wonderful somewhere on my team. It was probably a communications guy who got killed early on. So he set it up, but <laughs> it wasn't there to use it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I said, OK, this sounds awful, but I want you to fire on this corner of our fort. And they said, that's your area. And I said, no, but we don't own it anymore. So we didn't... I I imagine I killed some wounded nooms. I don't don't feel comfortable about that, but I didn't have a choice. It was a sort of... uh, an either-or choice.
0: A a broken arrow kind of scenario.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they did that, and that settled everything down. Meanwhile, some grenades that they'd thrown had landed in an old ammo pit where we'd kept spare ammo, and that started exploding... And that was on the far side of the fort. And so anyone between that and the... Uh, ..between us and the fire became silhouetted. And so they were easy targets. And they were, they were after uh, my bunker. I knew that because they kept getting on top and trying to swing things down through the window. And I had another machine gun manned by an Australian. And he kept hosing down my bunker. So, yeah, it was really, <laughs> really <laughs> tenuous stuff. Anyway, it all sort of settled down after a while. The, the uh, NVA had got in and taken over probably about two-thirds of the fort. And the um, uh, NVA had stopped attacking. And I read once, um, many years ago... The person who puts in the last attack wins, and I've always remembered that, and, I, and, and it struck my mind on the day. I said, "Oh gosh, perhaps we better put in another attack."
0: So I got hold wow. of the
1: Australians and said, "Put in a counter attack." And it was, it was about dawn. That this had been going on for about three or four hours. About dawn. And so Don Cameron, who I owe my life to, stood up and said, right all you, you Nong's, know, come on, let's go, let's counterattack, let's go, charge." And he came running across the the helipad, and he was the only one. It <laughs> was done by himself, <laughs> and he reckoned the nooks got so embarrassed about him being on his own, they sort of reluctantly got up and joined in. So anyway, I couldn't write a movie this good. It was they came across and uh, pushed the, the North Vietnamese back over the edge of the fort, and probably no more than sort of 30 metres, 40 metres from our people. And everyone's shooting at each other and there's Mm. water bombs coming in and rockets. uh, One of the chopper pilots told me he'd never seen so many rockets fired at one time. (laughs) They were just shooting these these rockets at us. And we were taking casualties, of course. And so we got them back there and then dawn came up and they they held off. They didn't want to because the moment dawn came... And the cloud cleared. Normally, the cloud stays there till about ten o'clock in the morning. On this morning, this morning alone, it cleared at dawn, and I had uh, stacked above me phantom jets with five hundred pound bombs, which make a hell of a din. Mm-hmm. And they started dropping five hundred pound bombs, you know, sort of a bit away from the perimeter, maybe two hundred meters or so. Um, and the concussion alone. Mm-hmm. Is but then they dropped down at 250-metre uh, pound bombs, And then they brought in some aircraft with Gatling machine guns who just flew along the, the rim. We knew where the enemy was, and the guys in the plane said they can see him, see him lying there in the, in the jungles sort of waiting to see what happens next. So those poor bastards got massacred. Mm. And then this went on for a while, and, and then I thought, OK, it's a standstill. They were still mortaring us and uh, rocketing us and gunning us. And I said, oh, we've got to get out of here. So this is where Mike Force comes in. We were Mike Force, but another Mike Force company was to be flown into our chopper pad and rescue us. But the first and second Mike... Fo- no, the first Mike Force chopper, which is a CH-46, came in and they all got out and came and joined us. The next two choppers got shot down and landed on the, on the uh, helipad, which blocked the helipad. Mm. So there was no further reinforcements available. And I said to the Americans, you know, we, we've got to get out of here. I, I need some help. And they said, don't worry, reinforcements are arriving. This is about 7 or 8 in the morning. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, so I said, well, where are they going to land? Because the only way you can get here is by plane. And they said, "Don't worry, don't you worry about it?" I said, "Of course, I'm worrying about it for crying out loud!" You know, I need to support them when they arrive. And what I found out later by reading the records is they had no reinforcements, they had no intention of reinforcing us. They wanted us to stay there
0: yeah.
1: so we would delay the main force so they could have more time to fly the Americal Division, which is an American Army Division, into Cambodia to stop Cambodia being overrun. So we were. Collateral damage, you know, mm. sorry, sorry mm. about that, but you got to go. Yeah. So, um, and one of the things I like about myself is I'm independent and uh, this just didn't make sense to me and I went back to him a couple of times and at about 11 o'clock I said, look, you know, guys, if you get reinforcements here, it'll have to be soon because we've got another night coming up and my guys won't be able to handle another night. we are short on ammo, we've got no water, you know, so uh, they're all getting a bit twitchy. And so they said, don't worry, reinforcements on their way. And so I said, okay, here's the deal. If there aren't reinforcements on the ground here at 12 o'clock, I'm leaving at 1 o'clock. I said, no, you can't do that. And I said, okay, fine, thanks. And so at 12 o'clock there was no sign of anything. You know, nothing was happening. It wasn't going to happen.
0: By this time your intuition is telling you that they're yeah, not coming. Is, it's, it's, yeah. You're on your own yeah.
1: Sort of thing, yeah. So I had the, the medevac choppers come in. I had, I had 43 dead Nongs, 11 dead marines, a couple of dead special forces and uh, and Vietnamese special forces. So I had a lot of, lot of dead bodies around. On top of that, the chopper pilot, whom I have seen since a couple of times, he's an American, um, told me he, he conveyed – they keep, keep numbers, obviously, obviously. – uh, he conveyed 71 seriously wounded people off the position. So that was my doing because I said to him, you don't have to come in, this is very perilous here, and he said, I'm coming in. So he came in and he flew his chopper alongside one of those bunds one of those raised earthen things. We stood on the bun and literally threw the wounded about two metres through the air to land on the, in the helicopter because it couldn't land, and that's the only way we could get the wounded on. And some of the wounded were saying, <laughs> that was that was the worst <laughs> moment of their lives. They knew they were wounded. <laughs> the next they were flying through the air, landing on somebody else who's probably bleeding all over the place. Jeez. Anyway, uh, we got all the wounded out. Amazing. Including the, the uh, Chinese, you know, obviously, the Normans. And the Marines started complaining because they said, what are we going to do with our dead... Marines never leave anyone behind, right? And the Marine commander at this stage, everyone else had been wiped out, was a uh, Lance Corporal. He came up and said, yeah, when are we getting the Marines on the helicopters? I said, you're not. I said, I'm not having anyone killed, including chopper pilots, for the sake of bodies. And so I thought everything had been sorted out and then I fell again and then my problem started. <laughs> As if I didn't have enough problems, this this Nung commander, who's a great guy, a great soldier, comes up and says, Oh, there's a couple of Americans we, we're going to shoot And I said, Oh, wait a minute, yeah, let's let's talk about this. He said, Oh, yeah, they got it they shot some of our boys. And so the Americans had never been out of an American base, so they couldn't tell the difference mm, yeah, between a right. North Vietnamese and a Chinese and the uniforms didn't make much difference because everybody was wearing anything. So I said, no, you, you're not going to shoot them. he said, no, we are. And I said, you're not, because if you do, you're going to start a war, everyone's going to kill everybody else, and we're going to be left here, and we're all going to die. Now, if you just let this go, we may be able to win. And He said, how are we going to win? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> but we'll definitely die if we do that. We'll definitely die if we don't. So he let that go and then there was another fellow in a pit and every time anyone walked past the pit, he shot at them and he'd wounded a couple of the noongs. And I went and saw the noongs and said, do you know who's in that pit? I mean, this is when all this other fighting's going on. but I had to sort out the trivia as well. They said, no, he's not ours, it must be American. I went and saw the Americans and they said, oh yeah, that's sort of gunner so-and-so or something. And I said he's got to stop shooting. And a couple of them went over towards him and said, hey, hey, and he started shooting at them. And I said, this can't go on. Now, I couldn't let the Nungs kill him because that would have started up a, a race war. I couldn't kill him myself because I was an Australian and Australians don't go around killing Marines. So I said to the Marines, you have to deal with it. And they said, well, what do you expect us to do? And I said, throw in a grenade. And I said, no, don't throw in a grenade. Throw in three grenades. So there's, there's just no question you, what you we won't be able to say this, man. So they did that. Then they, the Marines had a discussion whether they are going to shoot me. Because <laughs> – <laughs> and I didn't know this till later. But you it, couldn't write a movie about this. No, you couldn't. Uh, because I'd killed a Marine. Or or of or through one, yeah. the one. Yeah, regardless of who threw the grenades. Uh, I was to blame. So they were going to shoot me. And then they, and I made it very clear I'm the only person who can get you out of here. So norms, behave yourself. Marines, behave yourself. And no one knew how I was going to get them out, and nor did I. So I was surrounded, literally surrounded on all sides. <laughs> I mean, this sounds so ridiculous. And I said, What have I got? And I had any air power I wanted whatsoever. And I knew that the enemy of those as smart as I think they were, and they were that smart, were listening in on my radio. So I said to the, my to Da Nang, I want six Phantoms loaded with napalm stacked above me. And they said, no, 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 you need bombs and you know, guns. And I said, don't ever argue with me. I want six Phantoms with napalm stacked above me. All right, if that's what you want. So they arrived, and I had everybody briefed. I'd sort of taken them on the rear side of the hill and briefed the commanders, and it was going to be uh, Nong's first, because they knew how to operate in the jungle, under the command of an Australian warrant officer, followed by the Americans in the middle, and then Nong's at the end. And I decided I was going to blast my way out by dropping napalm right on the edge of my fort, and the next one at the end of that napalm block, <laughs> and the next one at the end of it, and, and cut a, a tunnel through the jungle and through the enemy uh, and get out that way. So.
0: And you are withdrawing back to the north at this stage? No,
1: no, because going north would be where they expected me to go. Right. So they had ambushes set up there. Yep. And everything was set up. The There was an old airstrip there which they had covered and whatever. Now I went back in the way they came, right. straight in the face of the... Tiger. Straight into
0: the belly of the beast.
1: Yeah, because they wouldn't have expected it. Good so call. Went through there and the moment the bombing stopped and the flames had died down a bit, go and off we went, single file, down this corridor. At the other end of the corridor, which is about 500 metres away, which is the other side of their cordon, and across the creek and then up the hill to an old Montagnard, Village site where they'd cleared the jungle at some stage. And I had all sorts of people with me. I sort of had the reinforcement of flown in, the, the American helicopter pilots and gunners who'd come in with the planes and got shot down. So this this potpourri of Americans, uh, Nungs, uh, there were no, no um, CIDG, they'd all sort of disappeared uh, after the Nungs went after them. And so um, we got across there and went up to where this was uh, a bit clearer. And uh, because we had the pilots there, I said, we're going to clear in this garden, which had trees, you know, maybe uh, six inches wide, whatever six inches is. And um, we chopped it all down and the chopper pilots with us told us exactly where to chop it and how to chop it, which we did. And then we gave a call. And in came the first choppers, and we loaded them up. Meanwhile, the enemy is still uh, mortaring the uh, fort. They didn't even know we'd left, which is a good thing. And I checked with the enemy commander when I said, I've met him a couple of times, he's a great fellow. And he and I have wandered round the hill and had a look at it. And uh, we couldn't believe that here we were trying to kill each other. And... Uh, he said, I thought you were flying in reinforcements. We didn't send anyone to get you. Because if they had sent someone up, we weren't far enough away to get everybody out before they, they got us. So it was just good luck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So these came in and I'd made a, a vow to myself because there'd been an incident with the Mike Force, Special Forces, mm-hmm. at, at a place called Long Bay where he'd been overrun. And the American's jaw jumped on a. Not all, but most of them jumped on the helicopter and left, and left their soldiers behind uh, to be taken by the enemy and whatever happened to them. So I just made a vow to myself I would never let that happen. So the choppers came in, and then the the pilot said, Okay, last pilot said, Oh, we've got to go and refuel, we won't be back. And there were three of us left. And I always said I would be the last person on the chopper. And I thought, If they go away now, that leaves me, two (laughs) others, and a division. (laughs) So I got on the chopper, and I'm not sure how many it's meant to carry, but it certainly wasn't as many as we got on. Mm. And he couldn't get it off the ground. And the pilot turned to the the crew captain. The crew captain turned to me and said, we need three or four of you to get off. I said, we're not getting off. I said, you can get off. I'm not getting off, and I'm going to be the last one on it. So that's thought that was a bit rude. And then they said, OK, jettison, which means that everything gets thrown overboard. 50-cal machine guns on the side, unclipped over the side, everything toolboxes, everything in the, the back of the chopper. So I said to my guys, OK, everything over the side. And there's this one Marine, and he's standing there with his rifle across his chest like he's on parade. And he said, and he said to me, I remember this so clearly, a Marine and his weapon are never separated. I said, well, he can hang on to it and we'll throw you over or he can throw it over <laughs> by itself." And I was serious. I was serious. <laughs> I get this stuff around. So everything went over, including a, a, a corporal Fuentes who was a, a Marine. And I just re- I, I remember him because there was this Marine. He was a scrawny little fellow. And there he was standing in his underpants. And I said to him, "And underpants and boots, <laughs> I said to him, "Well, you didn't have to throw your clothes off." He, oh, no, I, didn't. I said, and we forgot about that. But when I went to America to go to the funeral of the of the uh, Marines, we left behind because they, they recovered the bones and uh, buried them at Arlington. When I went over to go to that, I I was asking him. I said, Who, "Am I imagining this, or was there someone there in their underpants?" And somebody said, "No, that was Fuentes." And I said. Is he here? Yeah, he's sort of over there. And I saw the scrawny fellow. I said, Yeah, that's him.
0: Standing over there in in nothing but his undies.
1: And I went (laughs) over to him and I said, Am I making this up or were you in your underpants? And he said, No, I in my underpants. I said, What the hell? And he said, Oh, when the attack came in, I was trying to have a sleep in my sleeping bag in my underpants. And he said, I've been in my underpants all night. (laughs) (laughs) And I hadn't noticed that he'd been in his underpants since 3 o'clock in the morning through to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so that that created great humour, yeah, wherever he went.
0: He must have made a pact with himself that he's never going to allow himself to be killed wearing nothing but underwear. That's That's right. And there's
1: a story I told the group before. There's another one where there's a fellow called... uh, I've forgotten his name. He'll come back to me. Mm. Uh, American Medic. He got flown in as a reinforcement because my medics had all been killed. And uh, he'd been on operation the day before, come in, was absolutely beggared, and lay down and had a sleep, and got woken up about three o'clock in the morning when our attack came in. And someone said, they've lost the medics out at Dr Buck. Get dressed, you're going out there. We're flying some medics out there. So... He got dressed but he didn't want to put on his dirty clothes so he put on some other clothes, someone else's clothes, which is, you know, what people did. And uh, he realised they were too tight for him but he, he was being harassed by his commander to get out there and get on the chopper. So he arrived with these clothes and during the day when he's squatting down, attending wounded and looking after people whatever, the seam on the pants split from, literally, from his ankle right through to his fly. And the, the pants were hanging open. And he did <laughs> <laughs> he, he got dressed so quickly, he, he, he just didn't bother putting on underpants. So it wasn't a pretty sight. So when we arrived where the choppers were going to pick us up, everyone's lying on the ground sort of facing outwards and doing this soldierly thing. And uh, he rolled over on his back to get my attention. He, he sort of thought, I'm a, I'm, I'm a medic. You know, I, I don't really want to be a, an infantryman shooting... They said to me, uh, "Oh, Captain, yes. You know, sort of, uh, where do you think I'll be when, when we go out? Would you, you want me at the front, or?" And I said, "Hell yes!" I said, "I don't want the last thing I see in this world to be your dick. You're the <laughs> first. Pe- you're the first person on the next chopper." Now I don't remember saying that, but every time I see any of these Marines, and they come up every now and then in my life, they always remind me of that. That was sort of my apparently my 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 <laughs> <bye-bye>. line. <laughs>
0: Love it, love it, love yeah. it. Well, that's a, um, that's a real hell of a story. And look, I I know that um, Gary Stone interviewed you uh, during the week and touched a lot on the, the sort of moral injury yeah. side of it. So we won't go into that uh, on this podcast because it's already sort of been covered. But I guess one thing I think would be useful to know is, you know, obviously that was many, many years ago and you've had your own journey since then and some issues with the family and so forth, you've told me before. But what, I guess, just... In a, in a few minutes has brought you to a program like this, and what I guess has been your team or awakening.
1: My what's brought me to this is my overwhelming desire to help other people who've been down, who are going You have to go down the same track as I have, mm. which is um, wondering how the hell you ended up in such a low spot. I've been I've been at the bottom of the well. And I decided I had to sort of talk myself or get sorted out. And I decided to get sorted out. So I sorted myself out. I didn't seek any help. And that only got me so far. And that was a mistake. I thought, okay, now I'm a lot better now. Uh, until my wife said, look, you know, if you don't go and get professional help, you won't be able to stay here. So I thought, right, well, I'll, I'll teach her. I'll go and check in with a shrinker who does PTSD and he'll tell me I'm fine and I'll come back and tell her I'm fine and I get off my back. And (laughs) I went there for a one-hour appointment with this guy. After the first hour he cancelled the other appointments waiting outside and I spent three hours with him and he certainly let me know that I wasn't okay. And then I started on on the road to getting something done. Yeah.
0: Well, it took guts, didn't it?
1: It took – the only thing that has taken more courage was to bury my son who was a chopper pilot who got killed by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the toughest thing I've done in my life, just yeah. tracking through and getting where I am now. I, I really am probably the most fortunate person I know. Mm-hmm. I, I really have a great life. and So good. I work at it all the time, making sure that I don't get things wrong, which I tend to do, and I have to watch my brain. I have to have part of my brain under control at all times, otherwise I'll say something or do something which is stupid, which make me feel good in the short run, but is destructive. I have a destructive element in me from my army time, and I'm aware of that, and I am doing things about that, or I have done things about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that further psychology support or what are some of the things that you found most effective?
1: Most effective, Mm. admitting that I have a problem. Mm. That's that's the absolute first step. It doesn't matter what you do or how you think. If you can't go up to somebody, Mm. anyone, as I'm saying to you now, I have a problem. I had a problem. I have it. I'll have it for the rest of my life. I just have to manage it, uh, which is what I'm doing. That's the most effective thing I've done
0: got to call it out and name it. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, thank you for that. And I guess uh, now that we're at the tail end of this program, uh, has there been anything in particular that's jumped out at you as, as being an aha moment or something that you really resonated yes, with? Yes,
1: indeed there has. There's mm-hmm. this concept which has been floating around for a number of years in the United States called uh, moral injury. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I'm dealing with now. Because even when I was in Vietnam, I read back to my wife and, and said, I think I might be on the wrong side here. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do, to admit, because you're going to take your soldiers out and kill people. And mm. the better I am, at, well, I was at my job, and I was good at my job, the better I was, the more people got killed. And just to sort of finish up, I, uh, when my son died in a his, his helicopter crash... Mm. I was devastated. I really found out what grief was about. Really found out. Mm -hmm. About two weeks later after the funeral, I wake up at about 2 o'clock in the morning and I thought, bloody hell, that's how I feel about losing my son. I've been responsible for the deaths of 300 people or more and every one of those had a parent or parents who who have felt and are feeling exactly the same as I am what sort of person am I? And that made me go right back to scratch and and just look at who I was and what I was. And it wasn't an easy journey because I, I felt so immoral. I that's a pretty heavy. That's, that's my next journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's uh. Yeah,
0: you know, you're an inspiration, uh, John. And I know that that's not just for the people who are listening to this at the moment, but also the people that have yeah uh, you know, had the pleasure of being with you on this program, like it's just such a, um, a breath of fresh air to bring these perspectives and know that a lot of the things that guys are going through in kind of more contemporary ages, um, each... It's the same it's thing. It's the same thing, each case is it's of its own merits, but it's, it's not necessarily new. It's sort of been around a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's
1: really... Well, I have found that by telling it as it is, as I just have done now, and I certainly did the other day with the people here... Um, it's, a, it's not only a cleansing thing for me but it, it's sort of saying this is in front of you and if you can't start now, when the hell are you going to start? Because some of the people here really are stuck mm-hmm. and they don't like themselves, they don't like what they did but they don't know what to do about it. That's it.
0: Amazing. John, is there anything else you want to sort of uh, throw out there before we… Oh, yeah, i got got another two hours worth. <laughs> yeah. well, look, I could definitely uh, see myself uh, interviewing you again. I know we're good. Well, that, We've got that,
1: that was my first, I think, eight weeks in Vietnam. I only had ten months to
0: do it. <laughs> We might have to make this a, a series, but uh, <laughs> look, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up there. We've obviously got um, – I know you're, you're leaving also after lunch. We've got yeah. some other people to come in. But uh, once again, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I really thank know you. that's benefited a lot of people. And I look forward to our next chat. Okay, thanks. Go in John. Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We trust it's been valuable. If you've got any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do encourage you to share this podcast with anyone you feel really needs to hear it and keep a lookout for our next episode. Thank you.